Hello, product innovators. Today we learn from a university professor and best-selling author on how the behavioral science of subtraction is so important in physical product design. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, onto the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Lydie Klotz to the show. Lydie has his PhD in behavioral science and is a professor at the University of Virginia. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling design book called Subtract. His research has been featured in many publications, including the front cover of Nature magazine. Today, Lydie is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can both understand what it means to think about subtraction in your product development process, but also to learn what the best practices are for ensuring world-class subtraction thinking for your next product. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Lydie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. It's great to be here. Great to have a fellow lecturer on the show. Uh, I understand that you teach <laughs> in the engineering program, behavioral science, with studying in the School of Design. So I'm an engineering and architecture professor. I study the science of design, and most of my intellectual contributions are in behavioral science. Before we scare your listeners away, we promise not to lecture. <laughs> That's great. Well, look, it's great to have the academic approach in here, and you've also got a lot of real-world experience in this subject. You've authored the book. Give us a bit of a history to how you got here. Maybe I'll go back to college because that's a you know a relatable spot for people. But I majored in civil engineering in college. I was always interested in the built environment, so how physical things come together. Plus, I didn't I realized I was going to have to take organic chemistry if I <laughs> and more electrical engineering classes if I went that other route. That wasn't appealing. So I'd always been interested in, in the physical world and how we build things in that world. Um, I, after college, I did construction management for a while, uh, so building school construction projects and got to see how those came together. Spent a ton of time when I was doing that, mainly managing the design process. So I think that's where I really got interested. It helped reinforce my interest in all these things that happen before the physical thing goes into the world that are, are incredibly influential in what that physical thing looks like and how it serves the people who are using it. And so Schools, for example, you think, oh, the way the way a school gets built is the contractor shows up and puts a crane and then starts erecting steel into the sky. And it was like, no, way before that, there are people who are <laughs> figuring out if a school should even go in this place and what pink colors the superintendent likes. And so I just found that whole messy design process fascinating and design being all these people who are contributing to taking something from how it is to how they want it to be. Um, and I, I liked that job, but I, I also thought that I would like doing teaching and, and research. I really enjoy working with young people and I really enjoy the more kind of theoretical, philosophical questions. And and so as I was doing that, I figured out how I'd go back for my PhD, study design. With my PhD, um, I studied architectural engineering, basically all the engineering that goes into a building. And then after I got my PhD in and had my faculty position, you've got a lot of flexibility and just thinking about, okay, where's the place that I can have the biggest impact on the things that I care about? I care a lot about sustainability in the built environment and sustainability in the things that we design. So how do we design things that don't 
ruin the planet and that make life better for, you know, people. So when I got my first faculty position, that's when I really said, okay, like there's a huge opportunity here um, with kind of the intersection of behavioral science, all these new advances that people are coming up with in terms of how we think and decide and how we use decision-making shortcuts and how, how can we pull the best knowledge from behavioral science into design? Because this is two fields that don't often talk to each other, but design would have a lot to learn from behavioral science and vice versa. I mean, behavioral science, a lot of the questions or ideas that they study could be design things. And that's where we'll get into subtract. That's amazing backstory. One of these things I find that in the world of design and engineering, something that's often forgot is the human factor. Right. The people coming up with the products are humans. The people designing the product are humans and the people who are buying it are humans. And this is where the element of behavioral science comes into play at all levels, right? From the initial onset, all the way through to design engineering, and then selling the product at the end of the day. So figuring out that human factor actually weighs into a lot of the decision-making along the way and is a really important consideration, which is why I was very excited to bring you on this podcast. Now, you've got a really popular book in the design industry. And it's called Subtract. It's a great book. It talks about this whole concept of thinking of subtraction as opposed to addition. So can you talk to us about what is the overall concept behind this idea of subtraction when you're developing a product and when you're trying to get something to market and also how that applies both overall and in modern standards of what's the science actually telling us today based on what you're researching on the back end? I was playing Legos with my son when he was about, he was three at the time and we we're building this bridge. And the problem we had was the bridge wasn't level. And so I turned around behind me to add a block to the shorter column to make the level bridge. And by the time I had turned back around, my son had removed a block from the longer column. And so that right there is subtracting, right? It's you've got this situation that you're trying to make better. In this case, we're trying to take a crooked bridge and turn it into a level bridge. And one of the ways to do that is by adding something to the situation. Well, I thought to add a block. And the other way is to take something away. And that's what my son stumbled upon in that moment. So that's the definition of subtracting. And I think it's really important to have the definition there to reinforce that definition, because I think one of the reasons we don't subtract is we often conflate it with less. And subtracting is an action, right? So this is the act of taking something away. Less is the end state. Less is something has been taken away or nothing has been added in the first place. So, so they're related concepts, but subtract is the, the action and the design activity that has to happen. We spent two years doing this research and I did it with um, some behavioral science colleagues, Gabe Adams, Ben Converse, and Andy Hales, who are here at the University of Virginia and Andy's now at University of Mississippi. The research was featured on the cover of Nature, which for an academic, that's like the pinnacle of, uh, <laughs> of what you can do with your research and never happened to me before, it'll never happen again. And what we found was that people basically, when you're thinking about design or trying to change something from how it is to how you want it to be, you, you think a lot like I did in that moment with the bridge. You say, okay, what can I add? And you move on, add something. And if my son hadn't been there, I would have just added, never thought twice about subtracting and just moved on and been happy with it. So our first thought the first thing that comes to mind when we think about how we can make something better is what can we add to it? It's not that we can't subtract. It's just that our first thought is what we can add. And that's the new science. We did that with, there were 18 different studies, all sorts of things with Legos, with writing. We did a miniature golf hole, trying to make a miniature golf hole harder, easier. People would add stuff. 
either way. And they would add even when it was wrong. So for example, we made a Lego structure where people had to protect a stormtrooper from a masonry block. And one way to do it was to add eight blocks to the structure. The other way was to subtract one block and people added eight blocks because of the way we set it up. And again, the reason is not because people are stupid. It's just because our first thought is what can we add? We solve the problem by adding, or we think we've solved the problem by adding and we move on without considering the other option. This is the part that I like about talking to designers. Some people are like, well, why is that a problem? And for designers immediately understand that, well, you're missing out on half your options if you're overlooking this basic way of making change. So, so that's some of the, the new science. And then the book delves into some of the other reasons why we might have evolved this decision-making shortcut. I mean, for a long time, adding has been beneficial just in terms of passing down our genes, right? If you acquire food, you're more likely to make it through lean time. Throughout the history of civilization, for example, you know, think about the first product designers. The problem was that there wasn't any stuff at all. So adding was the better way to make change for a long time. And now some of these opportunities we have to subtract are relatively new. And so it makes sense that our, our minds might be wired to think of adding first. Try to summarize the first half of the book in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you have to get the book to see the full package, right? One of the things that yeah. first comes to mind, I think of you know, developing over a thousand products over my career to macro yeah. design is two terms that we use quite consistently. Now, one is feature creep. And that's mm -hmm. a big one in product development. Generally by inventors and ideators, they want to add all kinds of features and it creates something that is really a negative experience to actually develop and even for the end users at the end. So feature creep is a big one. The other one is something that we tote pretty aggressively at the firm too. It's we call it smart minimum viable product. How do we okay. make sure the product is launched with the minimum amount of features that are solving the pain point that they've discovered, but doing that in a really high quality manner, which is very different from tech, which is get something out there and then fix it later. Well, in hardware, we right. kind of take the opposite approach, but either way, it comes back to the same philosophy. It's very difficult for designers and innovators and inventors and ideators to subtract as opposed to that human desire, as you've mentioned, as you found in all of these experiments that you've run with real people in an academic setting, you found that that is true human nature, is that you've got this natural urge or this desire to add things, even if it's wrong, as you said. And that's very, very powerful, something that everybody consider in design. And one of the things you'll recognize this immediately, right? And like one of the reasons we add and it's hard to take away is because it, it, we're, we want to display competence. And I was surprised when I did the research for the book, how biological that is. I knew that we wanted to display competence. I didn't know it had like this evolutionary origin to it. So if you think about um, bower birds, those are the birds that build the ceremonial nests and the male bower birds build these nests and the female bower birds go and look at the nests and then decide which male to mate with based on which nest they like best. And then the female bowerbirds go and build a nest to shelter the young. So the whole purpose of these initial nests is just to show that the person, the, the bowerbird that built them is competent, can interact effectively with the world. That ties almost directly sometimes to feature creep, right? It's like if you've added something to the product, it shows that, hey, Kevin did this. What a cool idea by Kevin. Whether or not it actually serves the, the customer is another thing. But, you know, I struggle this, with this in writing. You know, I write 200,000 words and then it ends up as a 70,000 word book. And it, it's harder to remove the words than it is to add them emotionally. But if you recognize that, you know, hey, I've got this kind of investment of competence in the thing that I've added, that can help you overcome that and take away. Also, 
it's not that you can't show competence through subtracting, right? It's, but I would argue that you might have to do more subtracting. So if you think about some of the famous design, you know, the iPhone is a really cliche one. I don't even use it in the book. The thing that was noticeable about the iPhone was the lack of features, right? And so, so that displayed competence through subtracting. And I think sometimes by subtract, if you subtract just a little bit, nobody notices. But if you subtract a lot, people do take notice and you can display competence in that way. It's interesting that you mentioned the word competence because subtraction from anyone who's in the design world is difficult. I love your example about condensing a 200,000 word book down to 70,000 and how much increased difficulty that is. I think of the design slogan we had of our firm, brilliantly simple design, because true intelligence in design is being able to solve the pain point in the most simple way. It should be so good that at the end of design, when somebody looks at it, they go, oh yeah, of course, that's obvious why it was done that way. And that's how it works. And that's how it should work. And that is really the most difficult part of getting it to that point in time. And I think that's where people who aren't in the design world as much, they might oversee that and not understand that like to get to that simple output that you see on so many products out there took a considerable amount of work and thinking to figure out how to subtract and to subtract the right things in the right way in order to eventually get to that perfectly simple solution to that pain point. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so good. And that's the other thing that I, this kind of easy misconception to have is that simple is easy, right? And and in fact, what we're saying is that simple is is harder. So number one, it's it's more cognitive effort. It's not that you can't think of subtraction. It's just that you have to go past your initial default, but then it's more steps, right? I mean, so if you're doing prototyping, for example, with a product and you, you know, you do these iterations and you've got a product that basically works, and then it's more steps to say, oh, would this also work without this piece or without this other piece? Um, and so, yeah, you're exactly right. More effort goes into it and there's less to show for it to the untrained eye. One challenge I pose in the book is like, how do you get people to, to recognize that the users and, um, and clients, right? I mean, if you think about this with the built environment, with buildings, for example, if you're an architect and you say, oh, actually what you need is a, a much simpler building and the building ends up costing less to build and your fee is tied to the uh, cost of the thing, you've actually just given yourself less money for doing more work. It's something as designers, we can kind of battle at a systemic level too. What are some of the examples that you've seen that really highlight this idea in physical products of subtraction as opposed to addition? My favorite example is will always be, I think, the Strider bikes. So these are the, the little bikes for basically two-year-olds, uh, maybe even younger. My daughter rode it when she was younger than two. Uh, and the, it's a small bike, uh, looks just like a regular bike, except it's got no pedals and drivetrain. <laughs> and how they work is the the little kid pedals it like a Flintstone vehicle with their their legs. And then The kids can balance, which is the surprising thing. I remember my son was riding it around his great aunt's convent. She's a nun. And uh, she's like, what? It was more conceivable to her that there was like some magic, like levitating thing in the bike that some inventor had come up with than just that this little kid, no, he can actually balance. And so it's an amazing invention. It's it's added like two years onto kids bike riding lives. And I, I like it for a lot of reasons. One is because it was, it shows that we overlook subtraction. I mean, think about all of the bikes that were sold over the last hundred years and, you know, all these innovations, fatter tubes, fatter tires, more gears, training wheels, 
And nobody thought, hey, what if we take these tires away? Would this be a better bike for a certain segment of our population? And so it was overlooked for a long time. When it finally was realized, um, it changed that market and made things better for a bunch of little kids. And um, the other thing I like about it is you mentioned the humans before, right? And I think one of the things that really makes that design work. And the, the inventor um, is Ryan McFarland he, and Strider Bikes is his company. And we, he talks about his design process in my book and he's a father too. And he said that the designer in him was thinking about the bike, but the father in him was thinking about the kid. And that's when he realized that, oh, like the kid can provide the balance, right? So we don't need the training wheels for balance. The kid can do that. We just need to make them able to propel the bike, which they can by pushing it with their legs. And so it was by considering not just the product, but the person using the product that this subtraction became a viable option. And I think that's a that's something that would hold true in a lot of different cases. I mean, even I'll tie it into writing and then shut up. But the um, in, in writing, if you leave things out, what you're hoping will happen is that the reader will fill those things in for themselves, right? You know, so Hemingway had this theory of omission and he tried to put just the bare bones of the story in there so that, and then rely on the, the reader's imagination. And so in that case, that's the human that he's designing for. So I think that's a really powerful principle that allows for subtraction. That's great. The Strider bike example is so powerful too, because it was a hundred years of bike manufacturing, everybody trying to come up with innovations and companies coming out of the woodworks and coming out with all new things, everybody trying to capture various pieces of the market. And it was missed for that amount of time. And eventually somebody came around and made a massive business out of that super simplification of something that's been around that could have been invented a hundred years ago. And, it, yeah. and it's very recent. And I think that's something that's very profound as a quick side note. You hear it in the industry occasionally where an inventor will come up and be like, ah, you know what? Everything's been invented, right? Is my idea right. really novel? Absolutely. Right. Everything has not been invented. There will always be innovation for human history that will continue to occur to the end of time. So I can't imagine looking at that example and thinking about your own invention ideas and looking at it and thinking other anything other than there's something new or novel or unique or a different way of spinning it. And a simplification can be one of those ways, not just an addition, which is what probably most of the people I would even say on our show talk about is things that they're adding or changing or combining. But that example right there is a way that somebody took something, subtracted it and made a fortune off it as a business. Yeah. And before people write in your comments that the first bikes didn't have any pedals, that is true. But that's also an example of like this kind of, the first bikes also weren't able to be ridden by two-year-olds. And so it, it, it took this evolution of, okay, adding stuff, adding stuff, adding stuff, and then realizing, oh, to make it even better, we can take things away. Um, and I'll, one of the other like ancillary studies that we did was just to look at um, patents. So you can comb all the patent data that Google has. So I think that's like back to 1975 or something. And, and we looked for additive and subtractive synonyms basically in there. And we the eight most common additive words, the eight most common subtractive words. And additive words are way overrepresented in innovation. I don't know enough about that whole process. I'm, I'm sure there are other reasons why you would put additive words in, like you can, it gives you a better way to claim novelty, for example. But the fact that these additive words were way more likely than the subtractive words as the kind of differentiating things with patents suggests that there's untapped opportunity in that specific type 
of innovation. With this podcast episode, you're showing everybody a new way to look at the world. A lot of the time with mm -hmm. these innovations, as we look back in history, it was quite obvious. Everybody was looking left and then somebody <laughs> looked right. And that's exactly what we're talking about here is looking at your project, looking at your hardware innovation that's coming out or that you're redeveloping or that you're thinking about your next version of and thinking about how could I remove things to add simplicity, both in yeah. from a user standpoint, a marketing standpoint, and a production standpoint. The beauty of all that is if you can figure it out through great design, which is really what it will take to get there, then what yeah. you can do is save a lot of time and money. And even arguably, we talk about a lot on the show too it's arguably easier to market something that's simple and direct, especially when you've mm. got a huge global population, you can really hone down on the people. Like you mentioned the bikes. Sure. Maybe in the early days there were bikes with no pedals and it was just marketed to everybody, but that didn't really fit. Now there's a niche demographic, which is two-year-olds that could really yeah. utilize that simple stripped down bike. Now that's a smaller demographic than all bike riders, but with a huge population around the world, that makes a right. massive business opportunity for that inventor that came up with that idea. That's interesting because I was just at a, talking about this stuff at a conference and people were like, well, how do you sell less? And I mean, my, my response was basically people who sell stuff are good at selling anything, right? You can sell <laughs> stuff that's not, not good for people, right? And, uh, but I, I hadn't thought of that argument that actually there's an advantage in trying to sell less and that you've got, you can hone your message even more. It's a, it's a simpler thing to explain. So that's, that's interesting. I was you on a podcast with uh, John oh, Lee Dumas yeah. of uh, EO uh -huh. fire, a really amazing podcast, huge on I think it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest entrepreneurship podcast in the world. We were talking about hardware on the show. And uh -huh. one of the big things that he advocates is focus. Because the more that you can focus and find your niche, find something really specific, the exponentially easier it is to sell that thing. Because right. you are very targeted to the exact and specific people who are looking to solve that one pain point. And you're the one person who is focusing on solving that and only that pain point. So they're more likely to choose you, even though you're new. Your product maybe doesn't have any or many reviews. Maybe it's a pre-sale thing. Maybe they don't know of your brand. All of these things they may overlook if you can target their pain point specifically and narrowly and hit only that. And when people look at it and say, yeah, well, it's a small niche demographic, think about the global population. I always challenge people when they say that, when they're looking at the scaling of their business to look at it. And I challenge them to say, do you truly believe that in the next two to five years, you can saturate just that small market you're looking to achieve worldwide? If you really think you will, then yes, okay, maybe broaden your horizon. If not, then focus on that. And once you start to win in that market, now you can look to expand the product to other markets after you've not only conquered that, earned a lot of money from that, but also have got a whole bunch of feedback from people on that specific pain point that you were looking to originally solve. That's that's a really, I mean, people, they talk about that in the book industry too. It's, um, you know, there, there's enough readers, right? Get the thing that you're doing right and get it out there. The other example I really like, and I think your listeners would too, is the, the building block. And so for almost all of history, building blocks were solid. And um, there's this woman named Anna, Anna Keichlein, who was uh, one of the first licensed architects in, I think the first licensed architect in pencil, also had like a engineering slash product design -y type background. She invented some toys. I know you had a toy designer on as your one of your previous guests. Um, and so she was a very much a designer and she she studied the way that people were the the work, the workmen who were putting the buildings together with the solid blocks. And she realized that if she kind of created what she called the K block. And so it's like this hollowed out block 
that could also be kind of fractured at the corners to make it more more adaptable for building. So she's again the the, the reason I'm adding that detail is because she's she came to this by thinking about the users. In this case, it wasn't even the users of the building; it was the people who had to put the put the thing together. And so her block became the precursor to those ubiquitous, you know, CMU blocks that you see. They look like a squared off figure eight. Um, and there are these hollow building blocks that everybody builds with now. They're lighter, they're less expensive, they use less energy to, to fire, you know, um, and they also uh they also perform better in the building. The the you know, the the block plus the air void is actually better thermal performance than a solid block um and so again you know this this notion that hey there's nothing new to invent for the history and for all of human history we've got solid building blocks and kike line i mean i think she was like the 20s she served as a volunteer spy in world war ii or world war one so she's a remarkable person so yeah it was around the the 20s that she came up with the the hollow block and it's just you know obviously a, a better product for building. So that's another of my favorite kind of um, hardware subtractions. Really good example. And of course, to get there required great design to figure out how exactly that would work. And one of the things you highlighted is she looked at not just the end user being the building or the people in the building and improved thermal properties, but also right. the person that was putting that in place and found out if I could make their job easier, save them money, give them a cheaper product that performs better, they're going to change the game. And that's exactly what happened through subtraction. So if we're thinking about our own products and for all the listeners out there, based on all the research you've done over the years on this, this subject, how do you subtract better? How do you think about subtraction and be really a leader at the forefront of kind of this theory of subtraction so that they can apply this to their designs and their thinking moving forward? And one thing that worked in our experiments and I think works in the real world are reminders. And so people are kind of part of the way there on the reminder, listening to this podcast, they're putting subtraction top of mind. And then hopefully they'll, uh, you know, the next time they have a design decision to make, they're less likely to overlook it. I'll say that these reminders in our experiments didn't prove very like transferable. Um, so just because you are reminded to subtract in one context doesn't mean you won't overlook it in another. So I would say that a thing you could do to make those reminders more likely to work for you is to think about your own design process and see how you could build those into the process rather than use them as like a one-off, you're always remembering it. So this isn't a design example, but when I, when I do my to-do list, I also force myself to write down stop doings, right? So, so whatever you're and that forces me not to overlook subtraction in my social life. Uh, but so if you can build those reminders into your design process, that can be really, um, really helpful and a good way to to find more of these options that we might otherwise miss. Um, the book also, you know, if you, the book is seven hours of listening, if you listen to it on, uh, on audiobooks, and, you know, that would be a little more of a kind of rearranging of your mental, uh, mental furniture to help you think about subtraction more. But I, I think the, the reminders is a good, a good first step. Also, um, rules. I mean, so reminders are very, okay, this is, leaves it up to you, but I think that I talk about the the game Jenga in the uh, in the book and compare it to to Legos. Um, and so Legos, basically, what we do with Legos is build, right? And Jenga is essentially just building blocks, right? And but the rule of Jenga is that the first thing you have to do is subtract. You first thing you have to do is take away, and that that very simple rule makes it so that 
you don't overlook subtraction. It also creates very different behavior in this overall building block game. It gets taller and taller, but it never, it doesn't take up your whole living room as, as our Legos do. So rules is, a, is another one to the extent that you can put rules in place for yourself or for your teams. Um, that, that would be a good way to stop overlooking it. Um, the And then I'll say one last thing is that it's what first you have to think of it, right? And then you have to choose it. And there are barriers to choosing less as well, right? You might think, oh, it would be good if I took this feature off, but then nobody's going to see like the client's not going to want to pay me for it because it's going to look too simple. Um, and so I think in, in those cases, it's, you know, helping people see the, um, helping people see the extra effort that goes into taking away, helping people overcome this tendency to think that more is better. Also, kind of reframing subtractions, right? So highlighting what's cool about what's not there, right? So highlighting the simplicity, highlighting the streamlined nature, highlighting the things that have been uh, cut out. So things that are um, kind of maybe viewed in a more positive way than subtracting is a good way to help convince people that choosing subtraction was a, a good option. Those are a number of great tips. Lots of notes there. I was taking a bunch down as well because it's so useful <laughs> to look at all of these different elements to consider the subtraction side in addition to the addition side. I think it was Warren Buffett that said something along the lines of you write your to-do list, your top 25 things you have to do, and then you strike you across them all 20, out. right? That's the yeah, similar yeah, exactly. concept, right? And that can apply to anyone in their design thinking. Of course, to really get to understand these topics in depth, your book is the place to go for this. You literally wrote the book on subtraction and that is the title. So where can people go to buy the book and to learn more. Anywhere books are sold, uh, there's a audio book. I mean, if you like Amazon, it's there. If you like the independent bookstores, it's there too. Uh, there's an audio book, a Kindle version. So wherever books are sold, they, and the publisher did a good job getting it out to libraries too. Much appreciated for your words of wisdom on the show today. Thanks again. Thanks, Kevin. This is great. So fun to talk to and your audience. Thank you. Likewise. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast. The show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to MacoDesign.com. That's M-A-K-O Design. Design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.